Welcome to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, Torah with a Point of View, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, America's first Jewish institution of higher learning. My name is Joshua Holo, your host and dean of the Jack H. Skirball Campus in Los Angeles. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the Bully Pulpit Podcast, Rabbi Dr. Daniil Hartman, who is president of the Shalom Hartman Institute, where he pioneered far-reaching programs for scholars, educators, rabbis, and religious and lay leaders in both Israel and North America. He's a prominent public intellectual in Israel and abroad, and in 2016, he published the highly regarded book, Putting God Second, How to Save Religion from Itself. Rabbi Hartman, thank you for coming. It's a pleasure to have you. My pleasure to be here. In doing some of the research for this interview, I, uh, I checked out what appears to be the most recent video on your website, and it's a presentation to B'nai Jeshurun, where you talk about boundaries, which is a theme that's, of course, uh, central to some of your writing. I was just curious, you made reference in that talk to intermarriage, and I think you also made reference to the fact that the B'nai Jeshurun seemed to be in a moment of decision of its own. Was your talk part of a deliberative process whereby they were thinking about their policy on intermarriage? Yes, um, a number of synagogues in the conservative, or used to be in the conservative movement, were turning, turned to us and asked, how do we think about this question? Now, part of what we do at Hartman is that nobody asks us, nor are we interested or inclined to give a ruling. I'm not somebody's authority. They're waiting for me to say, is yeah, this kosher? You're not their I'm not the POSIC. And I don't pretend to be a POSIC. And actually, I don't even like to be a POSIC. I actually want everybody to be a POSIC on their own. And the idea is that we are a place which teaches Torah, which will enable people to think about the question. And so B'nai Jeshurun and a whole other, and a group of other synagogues were, were deliberating. How do we go beyond the statement that we reject intermarriage and we welcome the intermarried? And somehow that line just wasn't working. And they asked us if we could create a learning process which will, which will enable them to discuss and deliberate. And so this was a, we, we created this program to think about what is Jewish identity, how do you think about the changing natures of Jewish identity. So for example, um, when we talk about boundaries, the Jewish people today are an intermarried people. It's not, should we be, shouldn't we be? It's a, it's, it's a fact. It's a fact. And so that fact cre- has to create a different type of discourse. It can't anymore be a cancer. We're just simply who we are. Right, right. Uh, and so now, what do you do? How do you respond? How does that fact shape the discussion? And so, yes, so in, in B'nai Jeshurun, we, we help the community think about that. And, um, and then ultimately, they, they did their process, but we had no part in that, uh, in their decisions. So I want to ask a question about the actual content of the presentation, if I may, and, and, and I'll summarize what you said in the following way, and, and you'll tell me if I made sh- I got it right and, and that I'm fair about it. So I heard you articulating two key things. First, Jews have always breached and realigned our boundaries from the beginning. This is part of being Jewish. It's part of being any group, as you, as you very, very clearly stated. Uh, this, is, this is humanity. And then you also added that insofar as we Jews are asking these questions about our own community uh, in a self-aware way, uh, we have a choice as to whom we include in this group that we call the Jewish people or Judaism and whom to exclude, and that you explicitly advocate for in roughly, it's a, it's a highly developed argument, of course, but you advocate for including as much as possible those who do, in fact, breach the boundaries, provided that even part of them remains within the boundaries and a part of them feels significantly and meaningfully obligated to our people and, and a part of our Correct. people. What I advocate for is that 
if a large percentage of the Jewish people are doing something, it can't be beyond the boundaries. Okay. You know, this Judaism is not just a theoretical Torah, it's a sociological reality. And as such, who we are is defined by what Jews do also. It feels it feels very Kaplanian is where sure. I was going with this. It feels yeah. so so the Kaplanian notion is a, ca- a Catholic go- Israel or a consensus Israel. But it's, it goes back to um, the Bible where Judaism is not the religion around which the Jewish people were formed. We're very different from Christianity and Islam. Judaism is the religion that was given to the Jewish people. And so there's a Jewish people that precedes Torah. And the whole Bible is a story of the Jewish people not keeping Torah. This notion of a covenant of peoplehood, or what I, in, in this new book that I'm writing, I call it the covenant of being, that to be Jewish is to be a part of a people independent from what you do or believe. It goes back from the first moment of, of, of Jewish discourse. And it prioritizes the peoplehood over the covenants. Or it creates an interesting relationship in which what Jews do also shapes the covenant. You know, you can't just simply say Judaism is irrespective of what Jews do. And what Jews do shapes ultimately the tradition. Now, there is, there's numerous Jewish laws which ultimately even um, um, regulate this, where an Israelite, even though they've sinned, remains an Israelite, so you don't kick people outside. Nobody could undermine membership. And then uh, um, various laws that require that you speak to Jews where they are and you take into account what they do. So. What's changed today is, is, is just that something that used to be a boundary is no longer a boundary. But the boundary breaking, as you mentioned beforehand, is consistent. We've always done it. Everybody's right. always Every, done everybody's it. Everybody's done it. So right. now there's a new boundary. And the new boundary is, or now there's the boundary that used to be, that was one of the most significant boundaries, that Jews don't marry non-Jews. And that when a Jew marries a non-Jew, they're assimilating. That's just simply no longer a fact. That's they're right. not assimilating. Any, any, anyone who uh, goes to really any non-Orthodox synagogue was certainly a Reform synagogue. Reform Judaism accounts for 50% of affiliated American Judaism. So clearly you're right. I mean, this is, if they're showing up at synagogues, something's going on. Somebody up. thinks that I'm saying something revolutionary. revolutionary. <laughs> I'm just saying, yeah, it's raining. You're raining. Yeah, right. It's raining. Oh, yeah. So, so there was a certain person who once said, we have to declare that intermarriage is a cancer. And I said, if you want to call it, you're just calling half, 50% of right. the Jewish people cancer. It's not. We're saying more cancer than body. It's well, a, we're, this is, we are. So now the question is, not what, whether, that's a boundary. The question then is, what's the new boundary? So, so I suspect you, you, you intimated this in your argument, which is that you're willing to work to include in a productive way people who, who straddle boundary lines as long as they have enough of whatever it is on the Jewish side as well. Th- that to me was, was uh, compelling because the real question, there, I see two questions that, that come out of intermarriage. One is, will you raise your kids Jewish? Which simply kicks the can down the road and asks the question again, is this person Jewish? And so then let's ask the child. And here's what I think is at the heart, the sociological, even the covenantal intuition of Jews, no matter where they fall on the spectrum of of observance. And it is the following. It is precisely the problem you posed, which is, I would pose as exclusivity. In other words, it's not that they may or may not have one parent who's Jewish, and that parent may only be the father. Many Jews are perfectly comfortable with that. The real issue is, 
is that person going to indulge, engage in, or live a life that is divided? And fundamentally, then, the question is particularism in the abstract, not, not in the, do you hold an allegiance which trumps other allegiances? And it, it shifts a bit your formulation. Your formulation was very generous. Um, but I think people's anxieties come from a place of... No, I think your articulation is a very interesting one and has a lot of promise. See, we have to come up with articulations of boundaries that take into, a crack where, take into account where Jews are and where we think Jews could go. So if, for example, you have an articulation which says that in order to be Jewish, you have to keep Shabbos, blah, you make a list. Right. You say the Ten Commandments. Right, right, yeah, the, you're talking to yourself. But your, your, your boundary, I, I used a different one, but I think yours is, is, I like it. It's a certain reading of certain texts that I quoted in that lecture and in this book that I wrote on the boundaries of Judaism, that is Judaism your primary identity? I don't think you need exclusive, but you need primary. And part of what we see is that there's probably over a million non-Jews who've never converted, who are living in Jewish families, who are willing to say affirmative to that same institute. And who are willing to raise their kids exclusively as Jews. So your primary identity is Jewish. Is That means you get up in the morning, and in, and in my terms, do you say the Jewish people are my people? And do you say Judaism is my religion? As long as you declare that, you're inside the discourse. Now, by the way, boundaries doesn't mean that I have to agree with everybody and every position within sure. it just means we have lots of disagreements. There might be better, I might think that this person's a better Jew, a worse Jew, that, that's perfectly legitimate. We all make a career of who, whose Judaism do we think we're better than. But that means that this is not leaving. This now, this group, is in fact part of the Jewish community. Now, this is so self-evident. Like you and I are talking, and like, and you're a story. Like we know this is what people. Well, what is this? This is what the Jews are doing. Seventy percent of Jews who are getting married today are marrying a non-Jew. That means we are somebody different. And part of the big challenge of of intermarried to feel to be able to make the declaration, your declaration. I like it, and if you don't mind, I'll use it. I think it's 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 more nuanced than the one that I gave, and I and I actually prefer it. They're willing to make that declaration if we're willing to say. That's yes, right. You know, <laughs> if we give them an opportunity, give them an opportunity. Say. So if we stop mourning, we actually might really win. So let, let's talk about the other side of the coin for a second, which is fundamentally emotional. And this is the historian's task as I see it. It is not, are you conservative or are you liberal? Are you machmir or not? On any rule, are you strict? Just because it's, you're strict by temperament. Here is what you are, I think, or not. Is, are you yearning for a bright line to constitute that boundary? Or do you exist okay with a fuzzy and uneven boundary that's not a perfect circle and that doesn't and because if you if you are comfortable with the fuzziness of the boundary you're comfortable with our history which is the the constant negotiation of that back to the kingdom of Israel it's it's not easy but it is the nostalgia which is fundamentally a yearning for a clarity correct which is some mythic notion that never existed. But how do we bring people on who have an understandable attachment to that? Right. Now, that, I understand that. And part of my life is to recognize that there's certain people I'm not going to be able to bring along. Yeah. And that's okay. That's right. Because they're also in. And they're also in from another side. Yeah. But also they're, you know, I, I, I remember one of my experiences as a teacher, I, I gave this lecture, and someone comes up and starts asking me a question. And I start answering, and, they, and I could see they're not here. And I realized, I said to him, you know what? I said, ignore me. <laughs> I said, I'm not a good teacher for you. My Torah is not good for you. 
and I want to reaffirm you. I don't want to debate you. Right, right, right. Because if I will win, we both lose. Right. I, you, this, and that's, it's, it's a very liberating thing. So some people who need all of that, some people who need these very strict, clear boundaries to know who's in and who's out, basically the modern world's a very scary place for them, and so they run away from that's it. Because today it's not just every identity, national, like, we're living in such complex identities. The problem that our discussion faces is, and this I'm aware of, but I don't have an answer for, and I don't think you do either, and that is what happens when ever-increasing numbers of people don't even want to, not that they want to live with a fuzzy boundary, they want to get rid of boundaries. They're boundarylessness. And there never has existed any social community, any social structure without boundaries. Like, imagine, I know there are a few people who tried, you know, when... Radical philosophers and athletes. Yeah, no, but there's and, a few, you know, no, yeah. I mean, society, I'm not talking about a few individuals right, who, right, right, who, who are sick, that, that, that's, they're the exception. You know, it's like a few people are going to speak about, oh yeah, we have open marriages. How many open marriages actually make it? Marriage, that means, there's a boundary, that means I'm committed to you, I'm committed to you. Adultery outside of the boundary destroys marriages. What, is there an adultery to Judaism? <laughs> that's the question. <laughs> now, for many people, People, they don't want it. Now that is the next frontier. So I, I, question, I don't have I a great answer. I'm not sure if that's really the problem. That is the problem being posed to us by observers of generational trends. And there's a I hope there, you're right. There's a trendy sociology about trends. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you have kids you want to send them to nursery school. You know, there's certain boundaries get imposed upon you, and you find yourself actually wanting that's them. True. But you know, but that's interesting because you even when you mention nursery school, it's very interesting because the choices we make very often, espouses, etc., are before we have our children. And then we're, we have this mythic notion that we could live in a boundaryless existence. Does, especially if we're marrying outside of, the, the partner is not, um, doesn't see themselves as, as Jewish, is there some claim that you made beforehand? Because very often then you're paying catch up and then it's a mess. And I think there are many people who make claims and I think they find that all of a sudden we all change, and we're, uh, you know, uh, it's. But, oops, but it's, yeah. Well, oops, yeah, it's like or, you know, like a couple says, "Oh my God, you changed." <laughs> that's right. As if that's like, <laughs> oh my God, what was I supposed to do? Yeah, yeah I was supposed to say exactly <laughs> I was the person my whole life. Yeah. Right, right. But there's an absurdity built into it. But but it, <laughs> I do I do think that um, we overstate the yearning for boundarylessness. I think that the the flip side of the coin, the the heavy lifting on what we'll just for convenience say call the liberal side, the more uh, comfortable with fuzzy boundaries side is uh, to be comfortable with having relatively radical voices within us who are really, really rigid on this right. and, and, and still saying what, what we just said that they're also... And, right. and, so and, if and, we, and so when boundaries become by definition fuzzy boundaries, we don't right. want boundaries which aren't fuzzy boundaries, right. but when boundaries are called non-fuzzy boundaries then everybody else says I'm against boundaries. Right, exactly. But it's also a way to get a little bit around the polemics because fundamentally the polemic is we are arguing that, that as you just said just now a boundary is by definition fuzzy, uneven, un, un, if, if, if you disagree with that simple statement, then there's no cognitive bridge to cross. Or you live in a world where there's some, you know, Chabad has done a good job of trying to, to reconcile these two irreconcilable ways of looking. But they have, look, yeah, but look at what they did. Chabad's great success is by giving up trying to make people Chabad. Yes, that's right. If their goal was to make people Chabad, it would be a colossal failure. They have two parallel ideologies. 
there is the Jewishness of their rabbi, of their educator, who is clear cut boundaries for themselves, but they do not define the Jewishness that they live by as the necessary Jewishness for the right. people who they're outreaching to. And there they have almost, they have the most boundaryless of, you know, light a cat, anything. Their notion is the pintalus, something, yeah. anything you do, a little this. And it's a day, you know, because no, almost nobody who goes through Chabad becomes Chabad. And they know that, but, but. And their but, success is not demanding that. It, well, it's not demanding that. On the other hand, they're also content to accept other kinds of support that aren't necessarily the demographic growth support. I mean, that they, and, and, and they're. But I think it doesn't grow. Every, listen, all of us, every, every move, we all, there's the finances of all of us. Um, no, I don't begrudge I, think, I don't be no, but I think was deep, not a cynical No, no, but deep down, I think Look, they, they have this, again, it grows out of a couple of, that every little step yes, but that's is, is part they, of the tikkun. That's because they, have, part of the repair. They, they can rely on an absolutely rigid and clear-cut boundary, which is the motherhood of the, the status of the that's mother. Right. And in that utter clarity, that absolute nuancelessness, they are able then to work within her because it's a yeah. pretty big circle. And they, so so it, it, they play it well, yeah. and, they, and, yeah. look, and they're true to themselves, and they take a lot of critique for it on the, uh, the ultra-Orthodox side. So, you know, they... I, uh, I don't mean, and you know, you may know this, that the uh, it, the reform movement, maybe non-orthodoxy in general in America, often fetishizes the Chabad example right. because of its apparent success, and it's right. more complicated. Great. So bringing the conversation about boundaries and one's approach uh, to a little bit more of the uh, real-world sociology of American Judaism today, which I know you know well, I want to ask this this question. I hope it's not too boring, but I'm curious about it, which is the following. Once a group or culture decides not to be fundamentalist, that they are willing and recognizing of the fact that they have to not only reinterpret their tradition with ever-renewing sensibilities, but that they have no choice but to do it, that, 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 that they're willing and they see it as part of their being, as you've said. Once they make that leap, that it's not in a literal sense from Sinai, but it's a, some kind of collaborative thing from Sinai in themselves, are all variants of traditionalism and innovativeness simply just a matter of degree? Yes. Is there no room for there being another axis of differentiation between them, such as? There might be, but you only know it usually 100 to 200 years later. <laughs> you never know it at that, at that moment. What was the thing? You know, and any time you try to make it at that moment, so Maimonides, for example, in your period right. of your expertise. Maimonides thought that... So this is 12th century Cairo. He thought that God having a body was, was just was, unacceptable. Was, crazy. Because that made you, for him, you were part of the barbarian world. That was the line. You, were either, you, you either accepted enlightenment or you were primitive. And the body thing connected to... Is so many issues that he thought were so critical that if God had one, it, uh, now's not the time. But for him, this it was, was an expression of his monotheism, his fundamental. Fundamentally, you couldn't be a monotheist. It was. It was. It was, it was uh, today. It would be similar to being in a. You know, you're. You know, in Western, you eating dogs. You were just beyond the pale. Right. Beyond the pale of anything comprehensive. And he gets up and he says, "That's the line." And he says, anybody who believes that God has a body has no place in the world to come. <laughs> and his colleagues look at him and say, you know, you know, and on the page, we, when we print my money, says, there are people, you know, the rivet says, there are people greater and wiser than you who believe that God has a body. Now, at the time, we didn't know. But now if you go, a couple hundred years later, nobody believes that God has a body. 
So at any given time, you never know what is going to be the idea that becomes the idea. Uh, conversely, the rabbis, they declare that the, Talmud, that the study of Torah transcends them all. That's an example of the opposite. They set a line, and they said the study of Torah is the parameter that's going to determine Jewish excellence or not. And that was ultimately rejected by the Jewish community. So we all love Torah. But could we really say that the study of Torah is greater right. than ethics? Modern Jewish life sees moral practice. Of course we want to study the intellect, but is Torah consumed or defined by the study of Torah? So you have the rabbinic figures of the Second Temple creating a certain vision of an intellectual pursuit, which under Jewish law, if you were, according to many of the rabbis, if you were studying Torah, you didn't have to pray because that was your engagement. Here, they set a line and they said, it wasn't a boundary, but this is excellent. Didn't take. Over time, we get to know what's more significant, what's less significant, what works, what doesn't work. You have to be very, very cautious in your generation to declare this is the definitive. This is not an issue of degree, but of, but of, but of substance. It's almost, it's almost impossible to know. Like for example, you know, we're not talking about this, but the same thing about what does it mean to be a lover of Israel or a Zionist? Sure, sure. Who, what's going to be the line? And what people, what used to be the line, what will be right. the line in 100 years? It's, right. so when we're you, breaching what, one as we speak with BDS. There all, are American all, Jews who consider themselves the absolutely proud but there we could, Right, but we who, could still declare, because it's not they are basically they're BDS. marginal. They're, it's, BDS is a failed movement. It's failed movement politically. It's failed economically. It's failed in the Jewish yeah, community with all the, the most pe but the people. But it becomes a flashpoint within the Jewish community. I know, but that's it's, most it's, of the. You see, but it's, that's, a, that's probably true. Of the rabbis when they said, uh, exactly. you know, uh, Talmud Torah can I get crumb? Yeah. There were only twenty of them in a room anyway. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's like we could we could make what we what, what, the fact that we're worried about things or declare things doesn't mean that it is a substantive movement. So you could still declare objectively BDS as outside of the pale of the Jewish discourse. But you could, in a consensus fashion. You in, a consen in other words, it's not yet a reality that the Jewish community has to say, you're a part of me. Similar Jews for Jesus is not a reality that you have to take into account. And I was at a uh, meeting with a, a rabbis in the Jews for Jesus community. Do you know what the biggest problem in the Jews for Jesus movement is? I have no idea. Continuity. <laughs> <laughs> I was, we see, most of our... Their intermarriage rates are 97, 5% or something. So, right, right. so look, it's just, that's not, there was a time when the Jewish community thought that was going to be a reality. There has to be a modesty. We're part of a journey. We're not a journey of leaping from certainty to certainty, but it's a journey of knowing we stand for something important. Now, buckle your seatbelt and let's see how the right, Jewish people play it out. And it could be, by the way, that we are going to water ourselves out into uh, oblivion. We right, almost right, right. did that. Listen, 19th century, if it wasn't for the return of anti-Semitism in Europe or the fact that it didn't disappear, it's not self-evident that we would have, that another sure. hundred years, you don't. It's, it's never self-evident when we look backwards, even though it feels like it is after the yeah. fact. But I think that the, the people who were really, the, the critical mass of people who were that close to uh, self-assimilation uh, or, or assimilation into the, were in fact also relatively slim Small. upper crust. Yeah, yes. It didn't account for the mass of Eastern. Yes. And, and, That's you know, right. It's, but, but point taken, that you, you, one, you never know. one never knows. And uh, well, I guess we're all along for the ride then. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully it'll be an interesting one. Before we return to the bully pulpit, we want to tell you about other programs on the College Commons platform for digital learning. Beyond this podcast, which is available to the public at large, Synagogue subscriptions offer in-depth learning 
including online courses, live interviews, and a new program called The Teaching Podcast, selected episodes from the Bully Pulpit enhanced with texts and teaching tools. We look forward to meeting you at collegecommons.huc.edu. Now, back to, oh, one more thing. Help us out and rate us in iTunes. And whatever you do, do not give us five stars, unless we deserve it. Now, back to our podcast. You mentioned Israel. Let's, let's move on to Israel. As you know very well, reformed Jews in this country, the United States, are very heavily invested in the place of women at the Kotel, the Western Wall. Many movements in America have decried uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's tossing out of a recent multilateral agreement intended to address this issue in, a, in, 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 in an important way. In tossing it out, he maintained the status quo and infuriated any number of people, including you. You uh, spoke out uh, against his dismissal with characteristic eloquence and passion, and I read it in a posting on the Times of Israel. You even went so far as to call Netanyahu's move an affront to Zionism itself. You were preaching to the choir and so far as on the choir, so thank you for that wonderful article. Thank you. In engaging with my Israeli colleagues, however, I've heard a different kind of critique, namely that we non-Orthodox diaspora Jews, we have to pick our fights a little bit more strategically or intentionally. And the argument would continue to say that we shouldn't probably invest too heavily in this one, meaning women at the Western Wall. Uh, And the two reasons that my Israeli friends and colleagues have cited are the following. Number one is that the wall itself, much less any dynamic that is based in its sphere, is simply too symbolic to get traction in the real world. It's just utterly symbolic for Israelis. And while the symbolism may have some potency, it also lacks a lot of potency in many, many circles. And the second argument against against this investment of our time and resources is that Israelis themselves are not so much offended by either side of the debate as they are uninterested. (laughs) So I want to ask you, A, if it's an accurate critique, and B, how do you feel about it? Um, I think it's an accurate critique, but I think it's irrelevant because it's not addressing the problem. It's true. This is an issue that American jury will have difficulty winning. That doesn't mean that it doesn't have to have this fight. Because while the issue might not be critical for Israelis, it is critical for North American Jews. The Kotel is critical for the ability to sustain a North American Zionism, by which I mean a Zionism which doesn't just support Israel, but Zionism which wants to have a relationship with Israel. I don't believe that the Kotel is primarily a gender issue. And if it was, then you can ask what are the various gender inequalities going on in Israel and what's the first, second, or third, right. and will this make it the top is, is, three? Right. Is, this is this the top three, the top four? Maybe it might be, because gender equality is a worthwhile issue to fight. Israelis fight it. Israelis have committed. I think this battle is about North American Jews saying, does Israel see me? The Kotel, as you said very correctly, it's a symbol, and the critique is it's too symbolic. But symbolisms are critical. Symbolisms are what creates a community. Flags, you know, what does it mean? You know, as Anderson teaches, we all have imagined communities. When we have small little communities, what is it? I forget what the critical number is. What are, or what is it, 140? Or what's, what's, the, what's the number where the group actually coheres and it's self-evident and everybody sees each other and you know and each other? And they're seen from the outside as well. And, and you're seen, that's fine. But the minute you go beyond 100 and something, 
you know, I think monkeys stay in these groups. So the minute you go beyond that, you basically have imagined communities, where I have to imagine you and you have right. to imagine me as part of the same group. So, so now we have a convention that there's this Jewish people and that the world Jews around the world care, are, are one with each other. Now, you sustain these conventions through symbols. Judaism is very good in symbols in time. Part of what Zionism does is it creates symbols in space. Shabbat is a symbol of a relationship with Judaism and with God, or Thanksgiving is a symbol of your relationship and your love and thanksgivingness to and thankfulness towards America. We Jews, as we all know, we, we, all we had was time, so we, we specialized in symbolic time. So I, I once counted there's about 263 Jewish special days a year. <laughs> Holidays are these speed bumps which connect symbolic connections to Judaism. What Zionism does is it gives Jews a vehicle to connect through space. And place. Yes. And place. So not just through time, and that's part of the health of Zionism. So here, the Kotel is one of the more powerful examples. Or Jerusalem. Look at right, right, Jerusalem. Right. We're claiming there is a physical symbol. So part of what happened is that because North American Jews were influenced by Zionism, and in their relationship to Israel, they want symbols in place, in space, in, in physical ones. And this is a success of Zionism. For me, the, the Kotel is very, sim, is very sim, similar to the symbol of the gay um, lesbian parade in Jerusalem. Also a symbol. Beforehand, parade in Tel Aviv, knock yourself out. Now to exist in Israel means I march in Jerusalem. The ultra-Orthodox said you can't march in Jerusalem because marching in Jerusalem used to be on, on, on Jaffa Street, which is 100 yards from, uh, from Meir Sharim. So initially it said, okay, march in in the university stadium. So they marched around the 400-meter stadium, mm -hmm. and they went back to the because the police said, I can't protect them. They went back to the Supreme Court. This, this is not my freedom of speech. I want to speak. So the Supreme Court says, you can march in Jerusalem. OK, but let's come up with a compromise. How do you march in Jerusalem in a way that takes into account the various sensibilities? And today, there is a march in Jerusalem. Because here it is. I exist. I'm here. World Jewry is saying to Israel, I'm willing to support you. I care about you. But I want you to understand. You don't just have an ally. I drank the Kool-Aid. I'm part of you. Now, part of what I want is, do I have a place in Jerusalem? Do I have a place in Judaism's holiest space? And you know what was great about this? Because I don't want to take. I'm willing to compromise. I'm not going to go, and I'm not going to force you to change. This is going to be a win-win. You're going to have your place. I'm going to stop. You're going to be safe. Could you just agree that from the, from the country's perspective, I also have a place. I'm also there. I think part of what happened is that World Jewry has been saying this slowly, over and over. And there was a taste that finally Israel was going to do it. And taking it back is basically saying, I deny your existence. That is a big issue. The fact that Israelis don't understand that they think this is about the Kotel, they don't understand that this is a symbol of whether Israel is a place where all Jews could say... Actually, I think, I think it's actually a little bit more of Israeli starkerheit, where they're saying, 
You're silly for choosing that symbol, diaspora Jews. They like to dismiss. And so yeah, but they, they themselves wear on, on Yom Hazikaron for the soldiers. Where right, do they go? Right, right, right. So here it is. You're saying, ah, it's a symbol. This is the big symbol. If anybody declares that Jerusalem, that East Jerusalem is, is not the capital of Israel, you have no political power, you lose all political credibility in Israel. So here it is. You're obsessing about this, and you're saying, but on this issue, North American Jews don't you're, make You're just being silly. Right, it's right. duplicitous. I think it it's just doesn't understand the symbols to which, over which Israel is responsible, and they fundamentally don't understand world Jewry. So, fine, let's, let's disregard BDS as a movement, uh, as a construct, but let's, let's ask its fundamental question from a Jewish perspective, not, not from a non-Jewish perspective, and say, okay, Rabbi Hartman just said, by virtue of being Jewish, by virtue of giving a damn about Israel, we get a seat at the table. We don't get a vote necessarily. We don't send our children to the IDF. Fair enough, but we're not absent. Okay, I think that that's a fair and astute representation of the emotional position of American or diaspora Jewry vis-a-vis the state of Israel and the land of Israel and the people. Great. Well, if we're going to get slapped down, the the logical next step is for us to consider removing then our resources and withholding them until such time as uh, that mutuality gets reestablished, especially because we are not pigs. We're not, we're not chazars about this. We're not saying that we get to tell you what to do. What to do. Every time in Israel... All we want is this. That's right. We're not, this is not a foreign policy issue. Right, right, right. right. This not is not telling your kids when to go to war. Exactly. One of the strategic questions that North American Jewry has to ask, and it's, by the way, in every relationship, um, you know, one of the fundamentals of any couples therapy is you have to stop trying to be right. Darn. And everyone, what do we do? We go to a therapist whose job it is to tell us that they agree that we're right and they're mm-hmm. wrong. Mm-hmm. And that just, that's not what it's about. Relationships are not about being right. It's not about winning. It's asking yourself, how do you move forward? So I could understand a world jury who would want to get divorced from Israel. I'm not even talking about divorce. I'm talking about uh, even walking. I could, I, but I can even understand yeah. that. I can understand. Just, uh, you know, turn over the tables. Just, turn over the tables. Okay, the that temper tantrum <laughs> right, right. doesn't build a relationship. And my critique <clears throat> is that it just is, is that it doesn't, and it just feeds into the opposite. Because if somebody, you see, I told you, you know, and right, it, right, right, right. it's just I, I you, you see, I, you see, you see, they don't really care. So the ones who win are the enemies of liberal Jews in Israel who said, I told you that. Right, they don't really care. They don't really care. What's so interesting is so many of them are anti-Zionists themselves, and they're questioning the Zionist credos of liberal Judaism. I understand it, but it's just not effective. All right, so, we, so I think we probably agree that it's not a good strategy, even if it comes from a place of long-term commitment and, and continued right. love. Because it's also, and part of the reason why it's so difficult today is that even though your motivations are different, it aligns with another group of people. You're doing the same thing, which certain people are doing who are rejecting the validity of the state of Israel. So then, so, right, right. You're, you're that, acts, that alignment, I'm, I'm you just get, You get interpreted right, right. in ways. That, so uh, your little oh, nuance is your own little nuance. Right, right. And, and, and nobody else sees it the way you understands it. And, and then here it was, you were, doing the a politi- you were doing a political act that is politically Right, wrong. right. And, and you, to yourself even, if, if, you, if you let it play itself exactly. out. So, so if we're going to agree around this table that... That step, that's, that tactical step, is probably a step too far. Then maybe we agree that everything up to that step should be as vigorous and as vociferous and as loving but committed as possible. 
I think the reform movement does an admirable job of. Correct. Now, the next stage, though, and this is, um, this is part of my life's work and part of the reform, reform movement in Israel's life's work, and in this we are allies, is that Israel's going to change not through political advocacy alone, but it's going to change through education. We have to change the Israelis. Now, we don't have to change all of them. This is what we have to learn from the ultra-Orthodox. Ultra-Orthodox are a dominant force in Israeli political life because they have 8% who are willing to vote on the issue. We don't need to win. We need 10%. Right. You want me in a coalition? Well, to me in a coalition means A, B, C, and D. That 10 15% is an achievable goal, but it's going to take a generation. And it's not going to happen through legislation. It's not going to happen through, through articles and through protests. Right. It's going to happen through the slow education of a new generation of Israelis. And I'm going to make a plug on this episode because I want the listeners, especially those associated with the reform movement, to know that you, citizens of the United States, your way to enact Rabbi Hartman's advice is to vote for Artsa in the World Zionist Organization elections. It's an indirect way to achieve this, but it matters a great deal. This is an example of us being at the table. So I just hijacked your comment, Rabbi Hardman. You've been a, no very, a very gracious. All. It's a good hijack. <laughs> all right. About a month or so ago, I don't have the date with me, you posted another piece on the Times of Israel, also a repudiation of a Netanyahu policy. I see a pattern here. <laughs> I wouldn't presume, but... Uh, in this case, you were excoriating the prime minister for his hardened policy towards Israel's 45,000 African refugees. Now, these African refugees had been protected by the Supreme Court of Israel from being uh, jailed. But the Netanyahu administration made life difficult for them without, they did a runaround, effectively, the Supreme Court. And you can correct me if you read it differently. In this context, you made an impassioned plea for Israel's Jewish identity, not defined demographically alone, although you make an important concession to the importance of demography, but you say in this case, the, the key ingredient for Jewish identity is a spiritual one. It is defined by the dignity of the compassionate. It was a very moving piece, and you should know for what it's worth my son, who did a semester in Israel with the school, he goes to a Jewish high school in Los Angeles, was exposed to this problem. They're, they're sophisticated in this school, and they present in Israel. This was the example that he cited for his college essay about a relationship with Israel, which is so it's, it's alive. It matters. So having made a powerful and, and, and explicit argument for tikkun olam, I want to ask you to build in a slightly different direction, but take that spirit and answer a question that goes in a slightly different direction, which is, to ruminate a bit on the state of the balance of powers in the Israeli government, in this case the executive and the judicial, and its importance in the fabric of, of Israel's democracy. This is a theme which American Jews care a lot about. Right now, there is an ideological battle going on in Israel, a cultural battle. In its more extreme form, it's whether Israel is going to be a liberal democracy or not, or just a democracy, a majoritarian democracy. Liberal democracy is not liberalism. Liberal democracy is the commitment to the rule of the majority, which is limited by the inalienable rights, liberties of people. Constitutional, constitutional protections. There are many forces in Israel who want to limit those constitutional protections, that who believe that Israel will be better served 
by a majoritarian, a simple majority democracy, where the majority will understand what's best for Israel. Any inhibitions on that should be um, removed. Now, you advocate very often for this majoritarian democracy or non-constitutional democracy when you feel that your community is embattled and you have to protect its well-being. The sense is, is that the majority knows what it needs to do for its security. And the other issues, the constitutional protections, the liberties, which provide inalienable protections for individuals, it's at the expense of what the community wants and needs. There is some zero-sum game going on. That's correct. And so part of what's happening, and this is one of the great paradoxes of Israel, Israel is now more powerful than ever before. But it's precisely in the midst of that power that there is a growing discourse of fear. And Israel's not alone in that. All of Western democracies, That's including right. America. And what we've discovered is that all of our constitutional protections aren't working. Fear is overriding many of these constitutional protections. And the population doesn't want to be limited by individuals, the rights of individuals, which they believe are threatening the, the viability, safety, security, well-being of, of this majority. And so the majority is getting up and saying, I don't want to. I don't, I don't have the strength now. Now's not the time. Right, right. Now's, not, yeah, that's right. Now's, Now's not, not the, the time, time for, for me to... to worry about you. Now I have to worry about me. And, and I, I speak about this often, that fear is not an emotion. It's a vision modifier. Constitutional rights require that you see in the Jewish tradition that I feel obligated by. When I walk in the public sphere, I have to worry about what you need, not just about what I need. What fear does is it stops me from seeing you and it directs my feelings towards myself. And it is an evolutionary necessity because if I don't refocus my vision, my species will disappear. So when I encounter fear or I experience fear, I either it's have only to, necessity when you're seeing it accurately. Or when no, the thing that you fear is actually fear. It doesn't fear. even matter. In my mind, I will die if I don't listen to my fear, because I either need to fight or, or flight. This is what I have to do when I encounter that fear. So I have to respond. So the minute I experience it, real or imagined, and part of what's fascinating about our society is how little amounts of terror are actually required, or in Israel, it's now 38,000 refugees could activate that fear, just like that. And part of what's going on now um, is that it used to be in Israel that the great protectors of liberal democracy were the Likud party of the right wing, because it was the laborites, the socialites, socialists, who said, it's the larger community, it's the well-being of the community, and the individuals should suffer for it. And, and, and Jabotinsky and the revisionists were very liberal in their protection. They, they were far more. Begin was the They were the stalwart. They were the ones who stood the line. And, and Rivlin was, himself also oh, supported oh, Always. Rivlin. You, he, and he's, and he's, he, he's used to great, be, uh, he used to be mainstream. And it was actually the people from the Labor Party, socialists, who said, you know, we know what's best for the country, and it's, you know, it's like... Even the kibbutz movement, you know, it's about the community, it's right, about right, the well-being. It's serious communalism. It's, it's yeah. communal, it, it had the liberal, the individual, inalienable rights were secondary. Yeah. Now they stood there for, now it's switched. And now the group in power, there's a coalition between far-right individuals and the current government, which want to remove 
these constitutional protections, not necessarily because they're going to enact terrible things. They just don't want to be limited because they want right. the freedom to do what they need to do because Israel's now in an existential danger. Now, it's, now it's an existential right, right, danger. Of all the, of all the moments, right. this is the moment where the Supreme Court, this is it. And it, now some of them want it because of the settlement movement. Because, because you mean because they're lobbied by the settlement? Because they're lobbied by the settlement, and they're supporting the settlement movement, and they want to be able to build settlements wherever they want to. And the Supreme Court says you can't, you can't build it on private grounds. You can't. There are there are there other issues. Um, do Palestinians have rights? Do Israel? So all these issues. So right now, the the reason why I wrote about the refugees is it's about the refugees, but it's a much larger question. It's who's Israel? Is Israel more Jewish the more liberal democratic it is, the more we believe, as our tradition teaches us, that all human beings are created in the image of God, and all human beings make demands upon me, all human beings obligate me? And am I willing to create a society that feels obligated by that, or am I willing to subsume their rights under some larger self-defense, self-interest principles? I'll just share with your viewers just one interesting, there's an interesting law in Judaism, which says, in Hebrew, the poor of your city come first. And it's true, when you have to give out charity, the poor of your city come first. But in the Jewish law, the poor of your city includes non-Jews. We're now using the poor of our city, it's not your city, the poor of your city is not a geographical issue, it's now the Jews. It's now the We're majority. reasserting another boundary. We're reasserting another boundary. And this it's the refugees is the test case for me because refugees, there is no security in danger. Right. But as refugees, it's reform, it's liberal Judaism, it's gay, lesbian, um, it's rights, it's the rights of non-Jews in Israel, it's the rights of Palestinians in Judea and Samaria. Uh, so all of these, this, this, we're at a moment of testing Zionism right now. Are we going to be something great or are we just going to become just one more mediocre Western democracy that many of them are, you know, very often, oh, we're the best democracy in the Middle East. That's not a very high standard. That's right. You know, the standards are getting lower. That, it's a, it's it a deeper double standard that uh, we as Jews love to be a light unto the nations and special, except when we feel like we're getting special scrutiny and all of a sudden, well, why are you picking on Israel? And, and We want to be a light unto the nations, but define our setting, but not have to get feedback. You see my, no, no, I'm, I, it's a self-defined light. It's a very, it's a nice It works, story. it works well. Listen, if, if it works, if you, can, you know, it's like my mother thinks I'm wonderful. You it's a family. We want to reaffirm for ourselves. It's actually, but being a country is, is a higher standard. And it's one of the things I love about Israel is that it challenges us, but then we have to meet that challenge. Well, before we end the interview, I want to give you an opportunity. On the website, your, uh, your upcoming book is called Who Are the Jews? Can you give us a preview? I try to understand how our tradition understood what Jewishness means. We had a complex story, and it's a story of a Judaism of being and a Judaism of becoming. And in the book, I tell the story of the relationship between the two, of what each, what is the Torah of, of the Judaism of being? What's the Torah of the Judaism of becoming? How do they complement each other? And what happens when, they don't, when they're out of balance? And part of what's happening in Jewish life in the 21st century is that some of this balance is being redefined. And in some cases, as we said at the beginning, there's going to be new boundaries. But it's a story about the essence of Jewishness, 
um, but it's not a historical analysis. It's an attempt to create ideas which will help us think and address some of the challenges that we're facing in the future. Well, I look forward to it, and I want to thank, thank you very you. much for taking the time. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very, very much. Until the next time. Amen. You've been listening to the College Commons Bully Pulpit Podcast, produced by the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and please join us again at collegecommons.huc.edu.